Welcome back to Trash Future, the podcast about how the future is the comedy bad. podcast that we do. I, yeah, the, the comedy podcast where we make fun jokes and we have a nice time and we don't yeah. think about anything distressing. Um, uh, that once again has been forced to do the fucking thing that we do, where we instead think about things that are very distressing. Mm-hmm. I think we might have to think about renaming the podcast because I think when we started, Trash Future seemed like a reasonable, like, you know, the podcast about how the future is trash, like, you know, things are things are going to get worse. But actually, I think now we should really rename it Trash Present because, yeah, right. uh, yeah, yeah. I, think we're, I think we're nearing a kind of rock bottom scenario. Yeah, so, oh, uh, I mean. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's Riley, Hussein, uh, Milo, and Alice today. And yeah. um, I want to, usually we do a, a startup up front, but I didn't. We didn't want it. We want to sort of do it a bit differently today. I, I want to jump right into this, um, where we are beginning to see the extremely human consequences t- of not just austerity, but a much bro- a much broader trend of gleeful cruelty and sadism mm-hmm. in UK and US governance. When we see the uh, death, the forced death by starvation. Uh, of asylum seeker from Uganda, Mercy Baguma. She was located uh, in a flat in Glasgow beside her infant son, having literally starved to death because she was not allowed to work and was not allowed to claim benefits as a refugee. Well, in the same week, eight refugees all attempted suicide in protest of their conditions in asylum seeker centers. And I, I have, I myself... I don't. I don't know. I don't. Fuck. I don't want to make this about me. But I've. I've been hit with a wave. Just a wave of fucking despair. Just looking at, not just the cruelty, but the gleefulness with which it has been indulged. Hmm. Yeah. No. I, I. I agree completely. Um. There's something very sick about our society. Um. And I, I think the thing we'll, we'll talk about this in 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 more detail. I think this is sort of the thrust of of, of why we're talking about this. Uh, but like, we're sort of seeing the crocodile tears about this, right? Like, everyone who is involved in making this happen, everyone who is responsible for this woman's death, is going to say, "Oh, of course, we regret it," and you know, uh, we obviously this isn't what we wanted to happen, but it is, and it, it, is. it, it, it is. It's mm. it, the the chosen policy outcome of the hostile environment is to. Leave the country, uh, possibly back to your death, or to die here. Uh, it is to be un- inhospitable. It's just the hoops could have predicted thing, isn't it? Like, yeah. oh, we didn't think that by turning on racism, Robocop, any racism would happen. <laughs> no, you, you know what it is. It's it's. Don't cry because you got what you wanted, right? Yeah. This is that's everything that has been done in order to make this country a more hostile, a more cynical, more unpleasant, a more venal, and more cruel place has been in service of this. And it, yeah. And the thing is the thing is, right, if you if you are if you are if you're unwilling to say if you're like, yeah, if you're if you torpedo like the Department of International Development as much as it did as best it, it did the best it could, but it didn't do enough. But even then you torpedo that, right? Your whole thing 
if you don't want immigration into Britain with people legally making asylum claims, not that that matters, I guess, then the only way that you can stop that is to say, okay, we have to make Britain as inhospitable to these people as a place where they are literally where someone is trying to kill them. So Mm -hmm. we have to try to kill them effectively. Yeah, and uh, one of the one of the most recent architects of that now gets to go on a podcast with her daughter to talk about cum, uh, which yeah, yeah. It, specifically uh, big cums. It's, it's, yeah. it's also worth like noting that on the day that this news came out, um, the Home Office the, the home the Home Office Twitter video debacle happened. Um, yes. fucking hell, the, uh, the, that was the, insane. The video where they made like a one of those like pastel wellness infographics about how they were taking active measures to stop more rubber dinghies from coming to Dover, um, or coming to uh, coming to any sort of like British uh, island border. Um, yeah, I was about to say they may as well have had a load of border force officers on well, it in black <laughs> shirts, and then I realised that actually they do yes. wear black shirts already. Right, they do. They were fucking prepared for this change in tone of border policy. They do, they do. And and the Home Office left this on for I think fifteen hours before they deleted it, but it got like um, a million views. And it I'm also surprised got- they did. I'm surprised they deleted it at all. Yeah, because if you remember the whole, po- remember when um, we talked about this? <gasps> I think even last week or a couple weeks ago, that when interviewed about Britain's upcoming refugee policies, where Pretty Patel was trying to like get a four-star general to look into you know carpet bombing the English Channel, mm. um, they said specifically, "Oh, this is really gonna piss off those labor-loving lawyers." Yeah, essentially, right? Yeah, the, activist you know. lawyers. Yes, the, yeah, and this, the, act- the whole yeah. point is like this is we're do- and that in that and the, the, the just the idea that of this small well, I mean, cruelty I, to be I, in service of pissing off people you killing basically committing social murder partly to piss off people that you don't like. And yeah, I mean, the thing is, right? Any leftist, Sir Keith Starmer. I I certainly am a, a leftist and an activist. I didn't make it to be a lawyer. Uh, but yeah, I'm I am pissed off. So you know, consider that to be a victory for the Conservative Party that I am, mm. in fact, mm. um, annoyed. Yeah. I, I am yeah. I am uh, angry that uh, a, a woman has been has been murdered and has left a young child behind in extremely traumatic circumstances. Mm. As as a consequence of this 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 idea that we have to like we have to be tough on immigration. Yeah, and the thing is, and the thing is, like Alice, you being angry is actually the whole point of this. Because I don't know if you guys remember, but like a few weeks ago, when um, Priti Patel came on record, or at least kind of came on second, uh, uh, when she was kind of said saying that like the Home Office was going to introduce these new hostile environment measures, which were designed to make, which were like the kind of good effect of it would be that it would make left wing people lose their minds or something along those lines, right? It was like these yeah. are policies that are designed to like agitate you know um so-called like left- we've already yeah. lost our minds pretty we've been on twitter for years <laughs> fucking catch up you crazy <laughs> bitch but, but what's where, but what's really kind of obsessing and also just really kind of like enraging about all of this is that when she's talking like you know the way in which they kind of talk about the hostile environment policies and racking up the racism machine as a way of like placating their unhinged like um basically unhinged ready to go volunteer border force but at the same time also like racking up uh so-called credibility among a particular like element of uh the the columnist class is that like what they're really talking about is um people like Mer- like people like mercy being the human kind of effects of these types of political games right um and to them you know they will kind of they will kind of shed those crocodile tears and they'll kind of claim that you know They'll try to like absolve themselves basically by 
saying like blaming the bureaucracy or blaming the civil servants or even blaming like you know uh lawyers who make this whole process complicated etc when in reality what it is is like this is the desired intention of all this but this is the desired intention of like more mercies and more kind of um basically nameless refugees and nameless homeless people who are um killed and uh made kind of irreparably sick because of the policies which are designed to prevent more people from coming around. Mm. Mm. And I mean also one of the things that struck me was if you remember the the first round of like Black Lives Matter UK protests mm-hmm. it was very much a, a talking point on the right that like oh this is this is like American imported culture war nonsense you don't need to say that black lives matter in this country and uh, well here we have uh a horrific example of why we need to, along with, you know, God knows how many other people. Uh, Belly Majenka comes to mind, who yeah. was like effectively murdered and just uh, just was never investigated, no consequences for anyone involved. Um, and yeah, no, this is. Mm. Well, look. If, well, I if mean, I they... can if I can say this right. This is once again anybody. Anybody who looks at people talking about Black Lives Matter in the UK or whatever and says, oh, this isn't the US, uh, we don't have, it's not nearly as yeah, it's bad It's not like here. how cops Again, shoot people, yeah, ever. You can, te- you, you can safely ignore them forever. Yeah. You can never pay attention to anything they ever have to say for the fullness of time because they appear to have drawn a distinction that if you are starved to death by the state... Or 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 shot. If you were starved to death by the state's neglect, you are somehow more dead, right? That you the idea that we can absolve ourselves because because that we commit social murder of like 120, 130 thousand people over the last ten years more recently. Because uh, well, that's more what's, in, that's what's so know, depressing about it to me is that you're as dead. Yeah, but mm. like I I I don't. That's why I have the kind of despair that I have is that I don't detect the same kind of public anger that there has been in the US. I don't know if there ever will be. I don't know how bad things have to get. There's been a sort of slow shift that I think's happened under this government. I mean like obviously like border violence has been a part of like the UK government's policy for a long time, but I think it's it's gotten a lot worse. And there's been a drive to sort of make the idea of being legally allowed to be in Britain entirely contingent on the government's whims from week to week. I think kind of a good a good turning point in this whole like scenario was probably the Shamima Begum case. Yes, absolutely. Where the government basically used it. Like, they had no legal rights to reverse citizenship, and I'm pretty sure that actually in the High Court it'll end up getting reinstated eventually. But that that simple principle that like we can just like decide whether or not we like people and determine it on that basis. And there's been a kind of a shift as well from in government messaging from the kind of like vaguely neutral tone that government departments used to take to what strikes me as just full-on propaganda i started noticing this with because i drive a lot the radio adverts about brexit where they say shit like now that britain has left the european union it's time to make a start on our bright new future it's like we haven't left the fucking european union no we literally haven't because you guys haven't been able to fucking do it don't don't use government money to lie to me in a fucking advert and call it information like there's been a turn in the bbc to this effect too like i i like maybe it's just me right maybe it's confirmation bias like but around the time of the independence referendum up here 
I remember seeing Scottish nationalists go full on, like, ah, every word on BBC News is dictated by MI5 beforehand, and thinking, no, it's not. It's, it seems relatively even-handed to me. And maybe I was wrong. Like, maybe I was wrong in hindsight, and maybe it was, in fact, extremely biased, right? But, like, it feels appreciably more obvious now. Yeah, well, it's the, um... You know, it's 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 everything from you know the BBC was were the were the first boats out on the water, you know, um, trying to vox pop people desperately Jesus. bailing bailing out a dinghy. You know, I mean, you mm. but I focusing really focusing on this right, like there there has been this change in tone, but the uh, and well and while sort of starving people via neglect isn't new, right? Like there have been uh, there have been hundreds and hundreds of cases of people who are sanctioned fit for work after being dead and so on this seems especially cruel because it could so simply have been solved you know Chrissy uh, so, Patel uh, went to the the Commons Select Committee and said that she didn't think she hadn't heard any reports of any problems that asylum seekers were struggling to get their basic needs met on yeah. what is it 45 pounds a week 40 pounds a week. So I've got a little mm. more details here. Uh, and by the way, uh, Mercy Baguma is not... She, she, this is not an isolated case, even in Glasgow, even this month. Nope. Uh, so according to Rabina Qureshi, the director of a charity called Positive Action in Housing, um, who they, when basically, like, uh, Mercy was living on uh, charity donations, but mm. those charity donations were essentially... Uh, the, 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 the support network of the charities was stretched by COVID. So mm. what you're seeing is is not that covid this is not a casualty of covid it, it what what we have is a is that the, the again the tories in government have created and the tories and the lib dems too you know have created a scenario where someone's lifeline is so tenuous that one sh shock to the system throws it off and if you make a lifeline that is so tenuous that one shock destroys it then you have effectively not made a lifeline at all yeah. well yeah because if it relies on charity if the, how it like also just aside from just like the kind of out of the box evil that all of this encapsulates because it's just it's just it's a frank unwillingness to do the most basic kind of like civic duty towards these people right but the fact that like the british government has like asylum seekers who are nominally in its care who are relying on handouts from charities just to like eat is is fucking embarrassing like mm. it's so it's so embarrassing that britain is such a pathetic country that we can't even afford to give asylum seekers who are an absolute piss in the ocean in terms of like the number of people in this country enough so that they can afford to like eat drink and not die yeah well it's that it's it, it's not that we can't obviously it's well no but we i mean it can't yeah. in inverted commas yeah. uh and so and the other thing right is i think just by the fact that there are charities who are supporting these people as much as they can the fact that it was like infrastructural issues not as much funding issues that were keeping these charities mm. from like going and doing as much as they could and the fact that her funeral costs have been raised dozens and dozens and dozens of times over shows that a lot of people in the country actually do want to help yeah and we are being it's just like the, basically there, there are opportunities for doing that in, in like the political sphere. I mean, who exactly yeah. are you going to vote for to make that happen? I will point yeah. out what we talked about the Tories, we talked about the Lib Dems. Uh, Corbynism as a project, right? And this, uh, in the vaunted manifesto that had all of the all of these great things in it, the most left wing policy proposal in our lifetimes. They were going to close one immigration detention center. Yeah. 
No one, no one is taking this seriously. Uh, no one wants to take it seriously because there is, there is, and again, it, I don't, I don't, I'm trying not to be one of these rainy fascism island. I hate Britain, blah blah blah. People, it's hard, but uh, I think there is, if there is a desire to be something more. There's a desire to, to like, not just to, to, to help people who come here looking for shelter. But to like not create a world where people need to come here to seek shelter at all. Again, not because mm. we want to keep them away, but just because the idea of seeking shelter is something that we should be trying to. We should be trying to remove these push factors. Well, and yeah, bad news. The last, like, what is it? The tipping point of uh, ice shelves in Greenland now, where it's now totally unrecoverable. Yeah, that's been that was reached a, a little while ago. So yeah, we fucking love to see that. I mean, that that for me, because I think there's an extent to which, I mean, there definitely are a lot of people in Britain who, like, fucking love this Children of Men shit, and it's absolutely yeah. what they voted for. But it's also absolutely not the majority of people. It is a minority of people in this country, and I feel like it's being it's being pushed on us with this very aggressive rhetoric. I mean, I think the most chilling part of that fucking Home Office video for me was that part where it said, uh, yeah, we're, we're running so many deportation flights today to remove these people who've come to our country, like, quote-unquote, like, however it was they described it and then they said that uh and we'll be able to run much more once we're out of the european union and their laws aren't allowing these people to come here which was such a i thought a revealing kind of shell game that they played there where they made this about like oh those fucking liberal europeans it's like no this is like a basic principle of international refugee law that these people like they have they're just as much legally required to accept them in fucking russia as they are here like it's not the european union you can't tell me that the European Union, which is currently like making its peace with Andrzej Duda in um, in Poland uh, or with Viktor Orban in Hungary, like if you've if you've been to Brussels, if you've been in the rooms where the where EU bureaucrats talk to each other, they sound like the people who wrote the Camp of the Fucking Saints. They yeah. they would make Steve Bannon blush and like. E all of the EU's external like foreign policy has been doing this, but worse in the Mediterranean. Yeah, they did. You're not going like, to be able to. You're not going to be able to outdo the people who decided. Oh yeah, let's just do some slave markets. Yeah, they're never. You're never going to be. It's the the idea. Yeah, that this is somehow the problem of the people who want to turn like Malila and Ceuta into like giant gun emplacements pointed at Africa. Like, yeah, that's laughable. But also, like, there are a couple more things I, I want to address. Right. Number one is we we brought up this point about bureaucracy. What the what? Why that is so powerful? Why there has not been as much public anger? One of the functions of bureaucracy is to make things seem natural. One of the functions mm. of bureaucracy is to make things seem like, well, these are just the processes that happen, and if you follow the processes, you get the outcomes. Yeah, it puts and stuff so into the passive voice for you. Like, yeah. your application for asylum has been refused. Well, been refused yeah. by fucking whom? And so there is no police, there was no, there, while there was no police officer pointing a gun at Mercy Baguma, um, there she was still murdered and she was still murdered by the state it's just it was done politely and passively and mm -hmm. following the rules and all this um and also the other thing that i was going to say earlier about the charity is that uh three uh, other refugees have died in glasgow in the last 3 months from starvation it's not the first person this is not the first and time she won't this be has the happened last. Nope. and it's um, going to get worse when winter hits because uh, you just have people freezing to death so, uh, Hussein, mm. I want to bring you back in before I go into a little bit of, um, you might call, uh, a, 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 a little bit more uh, evidence-based anger. Yeah, I mean, I feel like 
everything that's been said sort of like i i honestly don't know what else to say to this other than that like this i feel like this is just like a very deliberate um like way of things to go i feel like you know we will kind of we we've seen like crocodile tears i feel like this is a story that kind of is uh yeah i mean like one thing i sort of like was thinking about was just how in many like the way in which we interact with these stories like see the the image of like someone like starving to death and they didn't have to be when it was all like down to like you know when this was really like an issue of not just like bureaucracy but also like just kind of a very brutal system where you have a where you have a home secretary that has openly said they want to make it more brutal like remember when we were like talking about like deportation bans and how meek that sounds compared to now um that's basically mm. just that's that's it's threat it's threatening but right. it's just shaking the stick it's not hitting you and, with and it. you have and then you now mm. have like a home secretary who's very kind of not just really well aware of like all the kind of like of the brutality of the system but is very willing to like weaponize that even further as like a way of like stoking anger like we spoke about like the volunteer border guards like just now again one of the things that like did i i don't i feel like i don't know whether we like laid that into existence or whether that was just like an inevitability of like you know what you do with uh what you do with boomers who live in the southeast and all have white fans for some reason um you know but they got but they it, it happened it's real now but, you, you, people got on twitter and there were like three asian males spotted at like yeah. 5 50 in the morning me outside and my, Dover. Like me and my dudes were just hanging out we were doing some fishing um <laughs> right no but like also another bit of news that came out today just before we went to record was like the britain first video that's been going around where they went to a yep. hotel um, where, which was our finest lads, which was, which was supposedly, uh, which was supposedly housing refugees. I um, mean, you know, this whole, like, um, there's been this whole thing about like, you know, uh, in this country about, oh, you know, all the refugees are staying in all the hotel Marriott's around the country. Um, which is so, which are so nice that one of them, yeah, uh, well, that get- one of them was driven to uh, commit a mass stabbing in Glasgow. That's right. These people are enjoying a free continental breakfast and one of them little boxes of cereal on a taxpayer. It's disgusting. I mean, I mean, so, I, mean like- ba- I mean, basically, that was what the Britain first woman yeah. said, right? And like, yeah. I don't know. We, I, it just kind of makes me think that like this is a Home Secretary that knows how to weaponize this, and it wouldn't surprise me mm. if like you know a lot of the kind of of monitoring and surveillance and kind of you know the actual act you know the actions of the brutal like the brutal actions of that's embedded within the system is sort of being carried out by civilians as a way of mm. you know and meanwhile the government can kind of keep uh launching mm. its kind of pastel colored like infographic videos and uh, oh, like, yeah. visually absolve itself right i i want to i want to talk about really quickly the consequences yeah, yeah. of this right because if you consider like former Home Secretary who like ramped up the hostile environment, even like to the point where it made Theresa May uh, have second thoughts. Amber Rudd, what's she doing now? Well, she has a podcast, right? Sajid Javid uh, was the one who like revoked Shamima Begum's citizenship illegally. What, what's he doing now? He's posing in the Times uh, magazine. He's got, and he's got a job at JP Morgan. He's got a very he's got well a job at JP Morgan. Yeah. Um, so I, I look forward to whatever Prissy Patel chooses to do next. Yeah, she's going to work for SpaceX. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. She's sending migrants into space. Yeah. That's going to be her. Yeah. Uh, so here's the, here's the thing, right? Um, a couple, a couple things here, right? That Britain first video, um, the state uses far right civilians as auxiliary troops. You see it in yeah, l- last in Northern in, Ireland. In Pinocha, you know, you know, you saw it in Northern Ireland. Mm. You're seeing it again now. It's just the nature of Britain is this ossified, ossified 
sort of passive voice bureaucracy. And so basically you're getting people being like go home CCTV vans, but on a volunteer basis in the South Coast. Mm. And you're getting and and the same thing is like the way the Britain First guys go through, they're almost like a benefits inspector where they're trying to make sure that the migrants don't have the refugees rather don't have too nice of a room. Yeah, well th- that, that that's where we get the volunteer border force thing from. And it's why I bring up Northern Ireland is that like th- the state in general has one trick and it's collusion with uh, far right uh, radicals who can do all of the headbanging stuff yeah. that the government mm-hmm. wants to do, and they can like be, uh, you know, directed and controlled and reined in as necessary. Right. Mm. Or yeah. uh, until they can't be. Um. So yep. you know, there's that. Mm. Uh. But yeah. So Britain and the idea that again, the the other thing to note here, right, is that the Home Office said this is a tragic situation, and our condolences go out to Mrs. Bagu- Ms. Baguma's family, who is, which is, as far as we know, is a son who we have made an orphan. Uh, the Home Office takes the well-being of all those in the asylum system extremely seriously. No, it doesn't. And no, we will be no, it condu- doesn't. Well, it does. It does. Just yeah, it takes just, the well-being, takes what's making the it opposite bad. of welfare. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, seriously is not necessarily a yeah. positive descriptor. Uh, extremely seriously, and we'll be, we will be conducting a full investigation into Ms. Baguma's case. But why, I don't know why there needs to be an investigation, because in 2018, when the UN sent a special rapporteur on extreme poverty to one of the richest countries in the world, there was oh, a which sub- country was that? There was a subclause called Asylum Seekers and Migrants. And I'm going to read to you what the UN special rapporteur found with regard to asylum seekers and migrants in the UK on his report on extreme poverty, which, by the way, just seems to have been forgotten. Uh, he says... Destitution is built into the asylum system. Asylum seekers are banned from working and limited to a derisory level of support that guarantees they will live in poverty. The government promotes work as the solution to poverty, yet refuses to allow this particular group to work. While asylum seekers receive some basic support, such as housing, they are left to make do with an inadequate poverty level income of £5 a day. For those who have no recourse to public funds as a result of their immigration status, the situation can be, ready for the understatement of the century, particularly difficult. Such individuals face an increased risk of exploitation and enjoy restricted access to educational opportunities. So we knew... Yeah, but he's a fucking he's a fucking like soft lefty yeah. EU lip. You can tell because he's got an, a U in reporter. Yeah. Yeah. So he, he, he thinks, right, that you should have to you should be able to not die because he's been raised soft. If you grew up where I died I four times dead. in my own childhood. So my uh, father died before he was born. He home, never did didn't have any harm. The home office has been no the home office has been warned time and again for several months that forty pounds a week is not enough. This is not something that they were told in twenty eighteen, several you know, home secretaries ago. So, Home Secretary Priti Patel... It really was fucking several Home um, Secretaries yeah. ago. ...claimed during a parliamentary hearing last week, though this was some yep, months ago... we talked about that this. ...home office policies and measures on asylum support were working, and that the department was absolutely making sure people were supported. When asked by the select committee whether she would raise asylum support rates by £20 a week, considering mm. how many asylum seekers are in Britain, that is the cost of, like, of, of like, of, of, of the, um, of the two-way radios for, like, one devolved administration police department. Yeah, it, mm. it, it is the cost of about three Thames Ferry donuts. Yeah, <laughs> you, you could, this those, is, those are delicious donuts, by the way. It is. It's the it's the cost of it. It is. Le- I would imagine it would be less than a million pounds. D- dramatically less. What am I talking about? It would be less than a than. 
it would be less than ten thousand pounds a week. <sighs> Doing the accounting on this is futile, right? Because yeah, it doesn't they, they, because it doesn't they matter. print it doesn't the matter. fucking money, right? It yeah. doesn't. It, it's a it's a cost that they have chosen not to absorb. The actual number on it does not matter. The prestige yeah. of like uh, the, the hit to our national prestige, if such thing there be, of us not of us choosing to starve people is less than building a big fuck-off aircraft carrier that we can drive around the North Atlantic, smashing F-35s yeah. off of it. Yeah, with no planes on it. Yeah. So, basically, just remember this, right? This is system working as intended, it's doing what it's supposed to do. Yeah, and also, and- also, the only way that you can get out of this is systematic, right? Like, paying for Mercy Vaguma's funeral five times over is a very nice individual action that a lot of individuals have taken. I, I'm not sure how much it benefits her. It's almost as if you need some kind of government to do this shit, right? There are people, there, there is a system that's in place that could benefit these people, that could treat these people fairly, that could preserve their lives and their welfare. And instead, it has dedicated itself to doing the exact opposite in order to appease like a handful of dickheads in the home counties. Mm. Yeah. So also the last point, you know, I want to bring up that that American America comparison because I think it's a actually a profitable one to make. Um, we have this. We have the far right auxiliaries working as an arm of the state uh, informally. Uh, we have the systematic sort of disregard for and murder of black and brown people driven by xenophobia we have all we have the we have the incredible overweening authority it's just all it's where the u.s is this it's it is this brutal explosion of violence we are just a managed ossifying deadening decline yeah i i I, that's why i'm so depressed about britain right because the u.s like things are very bad obviously um everyone has guns which are the contradictions heightener Uh, and also the management of the american federal government is so sclerotic and so insane that i feel like one of the things that britain has been very effective at is keeping the people who want this, the people who like doing Children of Men, they're fine, right? Their their heads are thoroughly above water. They're thriving. In the US, that's not the case because it's so incompetently managed that even those people are getting their absolute shit kicked in. But hey, you know, I think there are only so many so many America comparisons we can do. Yeah, I th- I I don't I mean I don't know what else to say about this. It's it's something that's we have we are we are raising the question: What is to be done? Yeah, it's something that should never be far from anyone's mind. I think you know, and and and, and it's something that you know I, again, like anyone, any it just means that anyone who talks about you know um who talks about how we're better than the states because we're more liberal or how we're how we're this or that or how you know we're the most compassionate society, whatever you can just ignore them forever. Yeah, go on, yeah. go on about your day. Play a fucking video game. Don't listen. Don't just ignore those people. Pretend they're not there. Make a fart noise. Just never dignify them with an answer. And can we, for a moment, through gritted teeth, just address a comment to centrist hacks everywhere? Of imagine what this would be like if Jeremy Corbyn were in charge. Yeah, still, probably weirdly, not that much better. Yeah. I mean, better, but like, 
Yeah, you know, but what I, what I mean is, it's like that constant refrain of like but them trying the, yeah. to like reassure themselves that the way they undermined the only option for making this even slightly better during the entire election process was like in service of something good rather than in service of directly this. Yeah, yes. fair enough. This is this is the result. Like centrist hacks, like you got what you fucking wanted. Yeah. Welcome to this. And if you say you don't want it, you're fucking lying because, like, otherwise now, you wouldn't have well, done it. Now they it. just continue to moan because they're like, oh, well, both options are really bad and everything's really fucked. And, you know, and I guess, like, even they're even kind of disappointed with Keir Starmer, like, not saying anything at all about any of this. Time to go, big man. Mm. Yeah. Uh, hey, yeah, I'm about to um, grab the grab the clutch on this podcast uh, because it's time for a jarring change in tone. Because, <laughs> Is this the moment yeah, where we that's remember? A driving metaphor from Riley. Yeah, I'm <laughs> gonna grab the clutch, pull out the choke, and turn on the windscreen wipers. Oh, it's time for it's time for a J turn, baby. Are, are we are we going to remember now that we do a comedy podcast and that occasionally we don't want mm. all of our listeners to kill themselves at once, Heaven's Gate style? Yeah, so we do a comp because mm. we we have, and also we have like a really a really uh, interesting, um, a, an interesting but not a comedy segment uh, with uh, Vicky Spratt later, who you'll know as the, the housing yeah. reporter for the I newspaper. Two, and, two uh, servings of vegetables yeah. and one yeah. of comedy. Yeah, That's so, the I newspaper is in the Independent, not the I newspaper is in all your Epstein news in one place. <laughs> it's not. Tr- it's not. It's not the True and On newspaper. No, that'd be fun though. That would be good. We should uh, yeah, start that. Bra- Brace Belden to buy okay. independent newspaper. Getting your eye sucks. <laughs> oh, I mean, I mean, I mean, I mean, you, you, it's it's kind of a joke, but I feel like we could actually buy a local newspaper. So we do. We had. Oh, we had, we had a, we, getting your dick sucked. Yeah, we had a website which was designed to save local news. Oh, we, we still have. We gave up because we got bored. bored. <laughs> We're just like, well, yeah. this bit's come to its logical conclusion. Is, Time to never is, think about it yeah. again. Yeah, this is no longer funny. Time to do something else. But hey, everybody, I, I between just to give ourselves a little, just to give ourselves something mm. that we can laugh at. Yeah, back I, to I've back got, to the morning zoo. Yeah. Uh, all right. All right. Mm. I have steamed hams. I have <laughs> a, 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 a a startup that's called the flu. You're listening to Riley and the flu. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to pronounce this. The, the startup is called The Flu. The Flu? Oh, is, it, is it Swedish? How many umlauts uh, no, does this have? None. I'm try- oh. it's, well, it's F-L-O-O-W, so it looks Dutch. It, wh- oh. What? Flu. The Flu. The Flu. Are you playing the big face? The Flau. Yeah, so it's called The Flau. I want to get quick quick fire guesses as to what we think it does. Hussein. The flies. The fat. I I I I, <laughs> I I I don't I don't even I I I don't even know. I feel like based on the lettering, it might have something to do with food, but. Again, that's just me replacing the W with the D. Yeah, yeah with D, the fluid. I, I am obliged to guess that it is a tap in your house that shoe polish comes out of. <laughs> uh, Alice. Uh, it is a um, low-flow smart toilet. No, none of you are even close to correct. So? Um, I'm going to give you their... Okay, I'll, I'm going to give you the, the first line of copy. Yeah. Okay. By the way, this uh, this is uh, thanks to friend of the show, Jathan Sadowski. Um whose podcast This Machine Kills is also worth listening to. This Machine Flues. This Machine Flues. <laughs> when we first conceived of the flu eight years ago, we had little in the way of resources. That was the one accent you can do, Swedish. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm trying to sound Dutch. Riley, Riley, oh, it's, it's the Enigma machine at work again. But closer this time. At least geographically quite close. 
Um, when we first conceived of the flu eight years ago, we had little in the way of resources, but we were foolish, hungry, and laser focused to deliver solutions that would transform the blank market and make blank safer and smarter in the process. Um, Some things in here don't react well to blank. <laughs> fish, fish market. It's it, it's. Uh, so no. I, I'm entirely focusing on water this time. No, because nothing it, to do with water. Why is what? it called flu then? Oh, because it's named Africa, and I can actually tell you this without revealing what it does. The the flow state is when you're like really absorbed in a task and doing it well, and they oh, wanted to name themselves after uh, how they felt when they were writing it. So it doesn't describe the product at all. It's no. it's a description of how they felt when they were making the product. Yes. So, <laughs> so really, depending on what happened on that day, this product could have been called anything, like the uh, the horny yet confused. <laughs> yes. Horny. The horny. Horny and confused. I'm trying to do touch. <laughs> it's horny and confused. It's, it's horny. It's the flu. <laughs> the flooding sucked off by a twink. That's what they want these days. <laughs> That's what they want these days. We're going to transform uh, the twink market. Oh, the morning zoo crew. Um, uh, mm. Alice, uh, Milo, Hussein, have you all done guesses? Uh, yeah, yeah. It's it's oh, it's Hussein, a fucking. Twink hypnosis video that we watched on the stream. Yeah. Oh god. Uh, who's saying I want from you? Are you a twink now? From I, that? I still have no idea. So I'm just going to go with my default, which is it's a machine that somehow sucks you off. We had that. Mm. That exists. The Chinese dick sucking machine. It's called a sex teleporter. <laughs> the world of blank. What they want these days. The world of blank is changing fast. Uh, At the flow. We're helping to accelerate that change with award-winning blank solutions that address the costs, inefficiencies, and dangers faced by blank, blank users. Solutions. Wait, mm. dangers? By combining data science and social science with cutting-edge technology, we're... What uh, dangers we're making, does this protect against? We're making mobility safer and mm. smarter for everyone. Mobility. I've added one word that's actually a signifier. Uh, everything else, it's pure marketing pablum. Is it no, like a high-vis thing for no. riding a bicycle? No, this is a this is a very highly valued startup. It's multi multi million. That doesn't of pounds. tell me. No, yeah, anything. that doesn't mean anything. <laughs> uh, my okay. So it's it's to do with mobility, and it combines data science and social science with cutting edge technology, in order to make it, you know, in order to make something good. I got, I got nothing for this. Right, because yeah. it's because it's just it's just Laura Ipsum. It's just innovation Ipsum. Yeah, corporate responsibility. Black Lives Matter flu. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm gonna do another. I, I, I because this is like one of the worst, one of the best I've I've discovered for mm -hmm. just oh, having just not just having so much copy that just doesn't say what it does. That just is just innovation pablum. I've got another one that I think you're definitely gonna guess. Reasons to work with the flu. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Quality people. We are proud to have some of the best minds in the business, always on hand to deliver first-class work for our clients. So that tells you they're a B2B company. Okay. Advanced capabilities. Our solutions are developed not only to a high technical standard for robustness and reliability, but also to delight their users. Wait, wait, wait. Is this like an interior design thing? Like they feng shui your office? No, not even Not even close. How am we I getting your office a nice flu? <laughs> <laughs> leading R&D, playing a key role in a number of industry-leading initiatives, we aim to lead our clients confidently into the future. Does anyone have any Lead ideas what twirling, this does yet? Twirling, twirling, twirling yeah, towards freedom. You've, you've, I think you've stumped all three of us here. <laughs> there's just, yeah, yeah you this ha, thing is fucked. You, no, that's the thing. You will never guess what it is, but I would be very interested in hearing But you are torturing us nonetheless. I was, is, it, I, is it some sort of like, communications thing? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Milo, Milo has, has gotten into the, into the ballpark. Yeah, okay. So, because the thing, what I would like, is I, when I ask for guesses, I would like real guesses based on what you've heard here. I've been what doing do you those. Think this I is? haven't been. Yeah. 
it helps all your staff speak Swedish to each other, <laughs> so your competitors can't understand your emails. So, well, I, this is the last last chance. I want. What do you actually think this is? Genuinely, it's going to be an app, isn't it? Yes, so, yeah. sort of. Yeah, it's like some kind of Apple platform that facilitates some sort of communication, either between your employees or like so, it's something uh, like no, that. Not employees. But it does facilitate communication, and it does want to make mobility safer. Hey. Mobility safe? Does it? This just sounds like a glorified, like hands-free phone thing. <laughs> mm. uh, it's so much more evil than that. Does something to make so, it so, mobility it, safer? Does something? I'll give you. I'll give you one more thing. One more thing. It's supposed to make travel by car safer. Oh, specifically, shit. I was gonna say, is it something to do with like scooters? Mm. Uh, no, it's supposed to make travel by car safer specifically. Oh. It's a heads-up display that your boss can yell at you at, causing you to veer <laughs> into tell a you truck. Where, it tells you where like all your fleet vehicles are, or something. No, 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 because no, it's for an individual. No, because that would be say, fleet. Flute. <laughs> it's a individual. The magic flute. Individual drivers <laughs> will use it, but it will be, let's say, foisted upon them by a third party. Oh my god! Okay, okay, I've got an idea. I've got an idea. Okay, uh, is it like? Is it? designed to like track how you drive so things like to do with cognition and like how uh -huh. quick you break yes. and Driving that's chronology. a big part of it hussein okay now who gets that information insurance company yep there it is oh but this has been around for a while that like the black box insurance thing yeah but welcome that what basically the flu has done <laughs> is they've turned your smartphone into the black box oh so I, 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 I can't get company. away from the fucking thing. So we thought that this was just going to be standard hardware in all new cars, but they've short-circuited that, and this is why it's worth $11 trillion or whatever, is because they figured out, oh, what does everyone have and keeps in their car? Their phones. So yeah. what, what if your phones was spying on your driving? So the idea and vision for the flu was conceived by... I wish it wasn't called uh, Milo, that. you're going to like this. Mm -hmm. Aldo Monteforte. Amazing. <laughs> oh, so he came out with a flow over here. <laughs> I mean, we got all these Swedish guys working on an app to tell your insurance company how you're driving. I got yeah. one. I, I mean, why do you always I go mean, to Italian-American when this yeah. is clearly Italian-Italian? Mm. Like, the, mm. my, my startup, Operazione Gladio. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think he's British, actually. Um, but I, I also do uh, love Guido like, British Italian, also which also exists. Uh, Itali the Italian flow state, where you get so into just making spaghetti that you <laughs> you're have just like saying racial slurs you don't even made. know what they are. Yeah, you're, you're speaking in you're speaking in yeah. rude tongues. Okay, if he's Guido British Italian, his parents almost certainly own a fish and chip shop and are millionaires. So, uh, so the idea and vision for the flu was first conceived by Aldo Monteforte, who wanted to make vehicles safer, smarter, and cheaper for all. And again, how is it going to make them any safer? Well, because the idea is, if you can only pull on the costs lever, if you're purely dedicated to supply side everything, mm. then what you have to do is you have to say, okay, we're going to invent a little widget that imposes costs on doing things that are out that are increasingly risky or outside the uh, acceptable boundaries but there are already costs attached to those things but like, they want to do it smarter and more importantly they want to make money while doing it like, yeah i think what well, they've kind of i think well they're actually no they're not misunderstanding anything because they don't care about all the things they claim to care about all they care about is extracting a rent from the market basically but like as someone as someone who drives a car a lot right 
I see a lot of people who clearly don't have that much money, but are invested in spending every fucking penny they have in extending their penis as much as possible by driving a cheap old car, but with a big engine as fast as humanly possible right. around streets that are not appropriate for it it's cool. because they want to be a fucking legend. That, yeah. it, it, this is your most middle-aged opinion. No, this is, it's not my no, most middle-aged. Is, no, middle-aged people love doing this. Yeah. It's my most, how the fuck do you afford that much petrol just for going A to B? Like, people who are doing like a hundred 130 on the fucking North Circular yeah, in their yeah, fucking yeah. Audi A3 S line from 2003. Like, if you if you had money, you wouldn't own that old of a car. So like, you just like you this, just love being a legend so fucking is, much that you yeah. can't not drive. This, at is, that this is a very particular culture in the southeast and northwest Kent where you get like a shitty Nissan or like you give it like really low riding wheels and an engine where like it, it, it it's it's so big that like. If you go above 40, it'll just kind of keep popping and crackling, but people still do it anyway. Oh, yeah, um, nice. And then they get their insurance through the flu. <laughs> yeah, also, it's, the it's, one it's thing I've learned pe- in, in the course of looking this up in order to find out whether their CEO was, in fact, Italian, he's, mm. he's just Italian, Italian, by the way. Thank you. Oh, is I started that- the company for making the car insurance. <laughs> in Italy, too many car accidents. <laughs> <laughs> is that they capitalize People are too busy the car, they point at the person and the car, they go, shut up your face, and then they crash into the fire island. They capitalize the the in the flu yeah. every time. Yeah, it's yeah. the name. That's, That's the most so, upsetting uh, thing about it. Hey, it's not just Gulo, I call it the Guardia Finanza on your ass. Uh, also, Vafangul, that's, that's still a North Jersey slang term. Yeah, so the Italians say that. Say the, North Jersey, the North Jersey guys pronounce that as a G. Vapangul. Yeah, yeah, anyway, I, yeah. yeah. Uh, Flu Drive is the main part product, and they use a policyholder's smartphone as a powerful mobility sensor. Once the user has registered and downloaded the app from their insurance company, it will start recording all journeys completed wait, by the car. Wait, wait, wait. If I that means if I'm mm. in my car just sitting still and I have my phone in my hand and I drop it, it suddenly thinks my car has gone twelve feet in the air. I'm sure that they, you know, I'm sure that they probably worked that out somehow in a way that they don't tell you and can probably fuck you around. Yeah, I fucking think so. Also, like, it's that thing where insurance gets so specific that it just ceases to be insurance. Like, on a journey where you crash it, where you crash your car, it senses that you've crashed your car and raises your premium for that day to £5,000. Like, it's just like, if you if you reduce this to its, like, natural conclusion, it's just like, well, this just isn't insurance anymore. This is just, like, just paying to repair yeah, your car. This, this is, is just, just basically tax. kind of... This, it's is an, just, yeah. this is just Google Maps for where you've gone that an insurance company gets to see. Yeah. Um, so, our technology is able to automatically differentiate between a car journey and other modes of transport like a bus or train. So, you know, what, they how? are tracking explain you all how. the time. Expl- explain know. how it can tell oh. that you're on a bus. I told it. I already said it. Said what is the it does. bus sensor? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> the bussy sensor. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, it detects if you're driving an e bussy. Yeah, so yeah. basically, yeah. And you can also manually adjust the app after a journey to allow for trips where they've been a passenger, not a driver. So if you have the flu... Wait, uh, so if I crash doing- my car, all I have to do is immediately get on my phone and do the, yeah, actually I was in the passenger seat thing and my premiums yeah. are fine. Also, if you ever they've ride in a car with anyone insurance else... insurance fraud. Also, if you ever ride in a car with anyone else, you have to, like, send a text message or your insurance premium goes up slightly. Awesome. Yeah. Wait, what if my I, friend is a better driver than me? Uh, all of this should have been thought about uh, by the flu, but it wasn't. Yeah. You, you could well, actually, if you're a good driver, you could sell your services to people just driving them around and then claiming to have been the passenger. 
Mm. <laughs> this is like one of the th- this like to be fair to this company, which I, I don't which I don't want to be. This is only slightly more fucked than the way insurance companies already operate, because what they do is they just implement these grand statistical models that have absolutely zero relevance in individual cases. Like yeah, my car it- insurance is still really expensive because I work in the entertainment industry, which, according to insurance companies, <laughs> means I'm going to crash my car nine times a day just because James Dean did it. I have had a, like literally I have had a car for like over seven years and I've never crashed it fucking once. But apparently because I'm in the entertainment industry, I'm definitely going to crash it every day. And if I walked out and got a different job tomorrow, I would stop crashing so my car. The, the, so the insurance industry yeah, right. is just the architect from the Matrix, but each of the little screens in his room has a different kind of like Nissan Micra. <laughs> so basically yeah. what, I, what we're saying is like, is that like this is doing mostly what the insurance industry did. It's, it's basically doing something stupid and harmful faster and more efficiently with a lot of unnecessary surveillance in and around uh, your a trash iPhone. feature classic yeah this is like this is a, totally in a wheelhouse so here they basically score you on every journey mm-hmm. uh, smoothness of your driving Ooh, uh, whether or not you're smooth. whether or not you're distracted so if you like look at your phone or change fucking music too chauffeur much. for my phone now <laughs> yeah, you're a chauffeur mm. for your phone. Uh, you, you also, if you're fatigued, so if you drive for too long at a at a stretch, uh, so if you cool. don't take breaks every two hours, uh, your speed and the time of day that you choose to drive, and each journey is assigned a score, and each score dynamically changes your premium. Damn. No driving during the siesta. So this, so this would really suck if you're a gig economy worker whose main job is involving going driving long stretches in a car for um without and and then being like penalized for taking breaks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's almost as though you're getting penalized for either taking breaks or not taking breaks, and your choice that's left to you is who's going to penalize me less. Mm. It's all very good and cool, yeah, actually. And we like it. Actually, we think it's good. But here's the thing, right? You're saying, meh, 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 I don't like the flu. I don't want to be spied on. I think this is a very exploitable thing, blah, blah, blah. Ooh, I'm a lefty lawyer, and yeah. I, don't, I don't like being spied on by my phone while I'm driving. Yeah, uh, so um, basically... You oh you don't see your score by the way only your insurance company sees your score. <laughs> of course uh, so they you don't all, get however, to know your score. here's the thing if you score well enough there is a rewards module that can be integrated into Flu Drive oh I love oh, the rewards allowing module. insurers to offer a range of food and drink vouchers and discounts at online stores oh fucking hell <laughs> and they give you a little treat. You don't crash your car enough, so you get to go to Hollywood Bowl and have a wimpy. <laughs> yeah, you get exactly to go to it. Harvester and film it for your influencer yeah. channel. Oh, God. Exactly. Oh, the influencer family should get look, one of I, these. Look, yeah. I, I, for one, am looking forward to uh, my insurance going up uh, the next time I decide to go to uh, the Dover Crossing at 5 a.m. with my homies. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> because, so because, because there's only a few hours where you're allowed to hang out with other guys before you get arrested. Mm. Before, before your car insurance starts That's going right, up. That's right, yeah. Yeah. Um, because you know it also it's like if you have to do it, it's this weird thing where it's going to if you have to do anything outside of normal if you're speeding because you're driving to the hospital or if you're driving overnight to like go see a family member or just doing something that isn't in the normal realm of like a short smooth drive where you don't look yeah. at your phone um then you have to all of a sudden now you have to bear the mental load of being like well i have to be making cost benefit decisions hundreds of times more per day yeah, the app just doesn't understand that my wife really wanted me to take her to see her boyfriend at three o'clock in the morning. <laughs> but but who who wants to make that many cost benefit decisions? That sucks. The rational I think consumer. About something else. Mm. But anyway, um, if you really want to tear your hair out, and Milo, this is really going to infuriate you. Love it. I present you a blog post from the Flu. Amazing. 
The Bloog. UK. There's an O got a line through it. You no, it's just F L O O W. No, I no, I meant the blog. The Bloog. The Bloog. The Bloog. The The Bloog. The Bloogs are having a tough time at the moment. So UK car sharing company CarShare has recently launched a new app, CarMate, powered by global telematics provider The Flu. You're not my car mate. You're my. You're fucking spying on me. You're not my mates. So the company launched. So the company launched CarShare in response to the COVID nineteen crisis, loaning out cars from members of the local community to be used by frontline NHS workers, charity workers, and food bank workers free of charge. Mm-hmm. The scheme is currently operating successfully, with three hundred cars donated in Bristol, Brighton, and the London Docklands area, and so on and so forth. So, how does the flu uh, play into this? The CarMate app, which is built using the Flu's Flu Drive solution, <laughs> is a vital element in the sharing process. The app allows CarShare to monitor the, the journeys ape. of volunteer drivers and driving behavior when on the road, providing peace of mind for all those who are donating their cars to others. So basically, what they're doing is they're saying, hey, I, not, doctors and nurses, it costs a lot to park in hospitals. Maybe some of you don't have cars, especially nurses, because we don't pay you anything. Here, you can drive to work, but we're going to spy on you. Yeah, that's very cool. It's very good, actually. How, how, you, how do you feel about that, Milo? It's it's just it's extremely normal and like definitely the solution to the problems that we experience. I think this is like more surveillance. It's just I was having a conversation with a friend about this the other day that there's like there is scarcely a, a dumb guy who went to boarding school in the UK who hasn't left like a mediocre red brick university and been like I've got a great idea for a startup and that is exactly what this is. Just this idea of just like oh there's this huge problem right to do with like the way in which we like pay and value NHS stuff. I'm going to solve it by making sure that each one of them gets loaned a Citroen Saxo for up to six <laughs> weeks and they get spied on but in a way that's actually really woke because it's about road safety and like that's important because the Citroen Saxo has a really bad Euro cap safety rating like honestly the thing's a fucking death trap <laughs> that's right that's the, that's the accepted Italian guy oh and he, <laughs> went, to, and he went to Stanford too yeah. So yeah, that's the great thing. Uh, they say a key worker with six points has been approved to use a donated car by the insurer, despite the normal restriction being three points, because the app will be actively monitoring her driving behavior. So she's a legend. She's got six points on her license. She doesn't fuck about. Yeah. So yeah, essentially, yeah. It's uh, yeah. We are providing we are providing surveillance solutions for uh, the dirty poor's who are doing all the jobs that we're clapping for them for, uh, so that when they use their car, you know, they won't do a Ferris Bueller's day off. How much is this valued at again? Oh, a whole bunch. The app will tell if you crash a parade and begin uh, singing a song. Well, it'll tell if you you joyride the Ferrari around and things of that nature. Let's see. Well, it's on the global... It's on FinTech InsureTech 100 list. Their annual revenue is about £5 million. But... um, just assume I, I a lot, like more, yeah. more than it needs to be for something that essentially the vibe is it cannot tell if you're on a bus or not. But <laughs> yeah, well, it, or they had to program. That's the other thing, right? This is something I always like to think about with these companies, where that because the problem it's solving is so idiotic, 
and and they have to solve it in such a convoluted way. They all it always creates new other problems. Like, well, wait a minute, how is our app for spying on people going to tell if they're on a bus? Where then they have to solve like nine other problems created by the ludicrousness mm. of this solution because it's a a technical solution to a, again problems that aren't technical. So you just have to keep pinning on little more solutions until you've got a Rube Goldberg device that just yeah just like tries to tries to snitch on you to whoever will listen. Yeah, it actually has a patented. Alton Towers sensor, so it knows whenever you're on a roller coaster. Because uh, we had some problems with people going on roller coasters and then getting banned from driving. Yeah, because if you drove like a roller coaster, that'd be pretty pretty intense. <laughs> See, I, I don't know exactly how much it's worth, but I presumably probably too much, quite a bit. Yeah, considering it's because it, it's raised sixteen point six million dollars, but like that could have been for five percent of the company. We don't know. Honestly, it's worth more than my dad's sapphire mine. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> anyway, um, I think uh, I'm about ready to uh, hand it off to myself and Hussein while we talk to Vicky Spratt about housing. Oh, thank you, Raleigh. <laughs> hey, and welcome to the second portion of our show where Hussein and I will be speaking with the housing housing reporter at the i newspaper and also writer at refinery 29 vicky spratt vicky how's it going hey thanks for having me i'm good how are you guys you know still still housed fortunately (laughs) just about yeah just about that's Um, what any of us can hope for at the moment indeed but Mm. certainly not what the government appears to be working towards he says with the excellent segue yeah I mean, I'm looking. I'm looking at. I'm looking at ways in which I can uh, register as a office, um, so that I too can get a uh, press and manger uh, near 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 where I live. Right. It is. We must sacrifice ourselves to save Pret's business model. If they have to adopt a new <laughs> business model in order to maintain competitiveness with consumers, then we have failed. Well, yeah. Or the other option is that all of the prets are going to be turned into housing through permitted development rights. And then... Uh, So let's talk about it. Let's get into it. Uh, Before we get into permitted development, I just want to do a little bit of a table setting, right? Uh, So at the beginning of the pandemic, the government's move to help renters was largely an unenforceable bit of advice to landlords to be compassionate and then a moratorium on evictions through courts for some months that was about to expire last week. So can you give us a little more detail around how we got to where we are, how we got there, and what's going on? Yeah, okay. Well, I mean, I'll, I'll start at the beginning because uh, that's always a good place to start. Uh, when, when the scale of this pandemic became clear, perhaps not, not the public health aspect, but the economic and financial aspect, the government realized that they were going to have to do something to make sure we didn't have a homelessness crisis. Um, And they talked about mortgage holidays for landlords and for homeowners. But for renters, the best they could do was a stay on evictions. Uh, A stay obviously is not a ban, it's just a suspension, um, which initially was three months um, and then and then was extended uh, at the eleventh hour, but I'll, I'll come back to that. And um, they did also increase the local housing allowance to what we call the thirtieth percentile, which roughly translates into like normal terminology as the lowest third of market rent in a given area. Um, this this sounds good, right? Like that's accessible for universal cre- through universal credit, um, which is which is good. But the the wider context of that is that. 
um, housing benefit actually used to cover the lower uh, the lower half of market rent in any given area, so uh, the 50th percentile. Um, but that was cut during austerity. So during this global pandemic, yes, it, it did get increased, but it was not restored to its pre-austerity levels. Um, and given that the recession we are now in, uh, as our economy uh, constricts, is, is the biggest we've experienced in living memory, um, that's just not good enough. Um, and lots of renters have been falling behind on their rent, obviously, because they've been furloughed or they've lost their income. And where landlords and homeowners have had mortgage holidays, which obviously they do have to pay back in on their mortgage, like it's not just free money, but you, you have more security and a longer time to pay it back. Um, renters have had no help with what we're calling rent debt. Um, and this is the thing you mentioned, they, the government just advised landlords to be compassionate. Now, as we know, landlords tend to only think about themselves and, and their investment in housing. They don't always think of themselves as providing someone with a home. So that's got us all into hot water. And I'm hearing from lots and lots and lots of private renters who are not experiencing compassion and being threatened with eviction. Now, the evictions ban was supposed to end last week. Uh, up until the last minute, we were like, is it going to happen? Is it going to happen? Throughout lockdown, all of the housing announcements, make of this what you will, by the way, <laughs> have been being rolled out at like 5pm on a Friday, which is really um, dodgy because like no one's watching the news or reading the news at 5pm on a Friday. It's fine for me to have to work a bit late, but the people who need the information about whether they're going to be evicted or not might miss it. Um so that's been happening consistently with pretty much every announcement about housing. But on, on the evictions extension specifically, at the end, well, it was kind of mid-afternoon last Friday, after months and months of being told to sort this out, they announced that they were extending the eviction ban for another month. We don't even know how bad this recession is going to be, how many people are going to lose their jobs. Like another month is like a drop in the ocean. And then today, just before I came onto this chat with you guys, <laughs> they've done another last minute Friday announcement, um, which is that, but this is actually a good one. But again, I question why it couldn't have just been decided like months ago and given people peace of mind. Um, the notice on an eviction, which up until this point was always three months, right? So you get served with an evictions notice and you've got three months notice, but obviously your landlord can't evict you until uh, until it goes to court unless you agree to leave. Um, that's now going to be six months. So even if when or if the evictions, I'm not going to call it an evictions ban, sorry, I keep doing that. That's actually the government's language. It's it's a stay on evictions. It's a suspension. It's yeah. not yeah. a ban. Um, that has like seeped into all of our consciousness. They've, they've been very, very uh, clever with that branding. Um, so, sorry, what was I saying? Six months. Um, even, even when the suspension does lift, you'll have six months notice, which is something. Um, but it's just not really addressing the issue, which is, as a private renter, if you fall behind on your rent and your landlord wants to get rid of you, um, you're still going to owe them the money uh, unless you've been able to pay it through benefits or savings. Mm -hmm. um, so it's just inadequate, really. Yeah. And so it seems like what we're, what we're doing is we have all of these, and you, you've compared this to the A-levels crisis, right? Where the government just sort of has this problem that is just, it is temperamentally unwilling to solve, which is quite simply that the rent is higher than most people's incomes right now collectively like there's those numbers just don't match up basically 
and there is something they can do to solve the problem that would create an evictions crisis and mass homelessness, but that would require them forcing the landlords to compromise, which they're temperamentally unable to do in any significant way. That's why I would imagine you have like um, rent a re- rent being looked at as something that goes into arrears rather some- rather than something that gets forgiven, even though we're also forgiving mortgage payments at this time, right? Well, that's really interesting. So I guess like, to pick up on your initial point, uh, why is it similar to the exam results crisis? It's, it's similar and there's a direct parallel in that experts in housing, like experts in education, were warning this would happen from the minute we went into lockdown, from the minute we realized how bad uh, the coronavirus crisis was going to be. They have had the very best information, the very best modeling, the very best minds talking about this, and they have not moved. And I don't, I, I honestly don't really know why. I don't know if it's like an ideological aversion to being seen uh, as weak or to be performing U turns or. Um, they just don't really understand in this case the housing market kind of like they put their faith in an algorithm maybe without really understanding an algorithm with exams results um but it, it does feel it does feel like uh, a real real clusterfuck um because it could have been sorted out so so much sooner um and this kind of ad hoc piecemeal way of approaching it when when we're not talking about something um small or easy to resolve like in the same way that exams results were about people's futures, right? Their life chances, what's going to happen to them for the for the whole of their adult life. Here we're talking about people's homes, where they live, the roof over their head. Like, it's wild to me that they haven't given private renters any peace of mind throughout this crisis and have kept things changing. Like, what does that do to a person, you know? Like, in housing, we talk about this thing called ontological security. And that's basically um, the human need for security and stability. Um, and one of the things that undermines it the most, according to psychologists, is how ha- is is housing stress. So we shouldn't underestimate what all this dithering and changing their mind and saying one thing and doing another has had to people who has has had on people who are facing homelessness or or being threatened by their landlord or the, or their letting agent. Um, and I think. It's yeah, it's just not not been taken seriously enough. Like Labour presented a draft bill and and really good solutions, I thought, um, that they worked on with an expert housing lawyer called Giles Pika back in May. Um, mm-hmm. I don't I don't know why it wasn't it wasn't discussed at at, at that point. Um, and then I suppose to your point about rent debt or rent arrears um, and where the money goes and how easy this would be to solve. It depends how you frame it, but what I keep coming back to is you just need to give private renters money, right? Like whether that's yeah. through like clearly through benefits. If a rent if a renter is behind on their rent because of coronavirus, give them money. Like find a way to do it through the benefits system. Um but then, right, that's really interesting because the reason we've seen so many people rely on the private rented sector, which has expanded exponentially over the last thirty years. Is because a we allowed house prices to rise beyond earnings across most of the country, and b we sold off all our social housing, well, not all of it, but loads of it, and didn't replace it. <laughs> so loads of people who would have traditionally been in social housing now are in the PRS. Um, and what we're what we're looking at, right? And maybe this is why the government's reluctant is essentially a massive public bailout of landlords. Mm-hmm. 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. that's certainly popular. Uh, Hussein, what, what's your thoughts on this? Yeah, I mean, I feel like Vicky's kind of explained a lot of kind of how much I know about this anyway. Um, I think one of the interesting things that you brought up, Vicky, was like the idea of like, is this an ideological aversion or is this kind of like them just not understanding the grip of reality? And I feel like, I feel like it is kind of an ideological block. Like, as you kind of said, that solutions have been posited. And even like the most basic solution of like give private renters like more support and more money, at least for kind of like the period where this virus is um, still like active and it's still like the economy still isn't kind of functioning in the way that it did like last year. Um, that kind of that kind of poses a real ideological bias of um, you know a country that has largely been dependent on landlords, where you have like small towns and commuter towns which have. Like their survival is largely rooted in the overvaluation of property and like the continued overvaluation of that property. So, in many ways, like a like a solution that would benefit and help people is also one that would change the fabric of this country, right? What What would the solution be? Also, by the I question whether the economy was working last year. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, I'm being I'm very charitable, but I guess, I guess like what I mean is that like when you have a when you have a uh, when you have an economy that's sort of like I mean, this is also one of those things as well where this problem was the problem of like um earning like house re- rental costs and like house prices um vastly outstripping earnings. Like, is this is a problem that existed long before coronavirus and has sort of maybe been accelerated by this moment in the same way that lots of problems, structural problems have been accelerated by this moment. And you have a government that like is largely ideologically unwilling to like, you know, enact solutions that don't benefit the people who like own property. I mean, this government, um, they have done, they have done some stuff, right. To be, to be fair to them. They they did promise the renters' rights bill in the Queen's speech at the end of last year, which is which is a really good piece of legislation that should absolutely go through. And um, it actually was uh, put forward in the Lords by a Lib Dem peer called Baroness Olly Grenda, and then adopted by the government. That's often how legislation works. Um, that, in my view, like could have been fast tracked when the, when when the pandemic hit. Right, like take the domestic abuse bill for example that that was fast-tracked because it was seen as urgent and it had been delayed and delayed and delayed uh why why not fast-track the renters rights bill we were promised an end to section 21 evictions for anyone who's been fortunate enough never to encounter one um that is also known as a no-fault eviction it's basically uh, a clause in the 1988 housing act whereby a landlord doesn't have to give you a reason to evict you um that we were promised under Theresa May would, would be abolished. We're still waiting on it. Why was that not fast track? Getting rid of Section 21 during this pandemic would have made so much sense. And then there's a, there's another way of evicting people, which is Section 8. But um, at least you're like getting rid of no-fault evictions. And under Section 8, it would it would be more rigorous, right? The, the way that a landlord uh, would evict their tenant. And then I suppose the, the, the broader context here, like the macro picture that you're referring to, of house prices outstripping earnings and increasing reliance on the private rental sector to the extent that it's now the second largest housing tenure in the country. Um, yeah, like this is, people have been talking about this for a long time and coronavirus didn't cause the housing crisis. Um, yeah. Our addiction to the idea that you could make more from owning property than you can from working did that. Um, right. 
that that that's like the the crux of it and then and and the kind of um the increasing stigma that has surrounded social housing in recent years politically the lack of political will to replace stock sold off through through help uh, through right to buy that that did that um and obviously it's always important to caveat like we have a national housing crisis but it is also very much a local one so like it's very different in cornwall and sheffield it's very different in london and where's a good example the cotswolds like every region in this country has a housing crisis but it's slightly different there are some places where it is actually affordable to buy a home um for some people uh but there are lots of places where private rents are unaffordable um for people who can't afford to buy um this is like based on average average wages so we we've but we've completely failed to tackle it and successive governments of, on the left and the right have, have avoided doing anything about it for years and I think what we're seeing right now and we're only just beginning to see it and I am genuinely like incredibly concerned about how it's going to play out uh, for the people who are on the sharp end of it i.e yeah. renters on low and and middle incomes who live hand to mouth because their rent's so expensive in a really precarious way and like we knew about this we we have like a crisis it's not a housing crisis like it's like it's like a it's like a crisis of identity in this country about who we are and what we've allowed yeah. to happen to home right the one thing yeah. in your life that should be constant the one place that you should be safe the one thing that you shouldn't have to worry about like your basic need which is shelter we have just completely um financialized housing and and allowed that thing that should be so sacred to become completely corrupted and now we're in a massive crisis and we do we do have a huge problem and i i think that the government are really really scared of it well and that's why i think you see them that they keep they they know that they have to do something and so but they know that the one thing will work is also the one thing they can't do right so they they keep coming up with these just bizarre, bizarre plans to sort of try to square this circle of um, house- housing has been financialized and not enough people can have access to it. Rents are going high, wages are staying down. But like broadly speaking, people do need to be housed to some minimum standard. So how are we going to do that? And it seems to me that the main, their main weapon in that arsenal is to say, ah, what we have are a lot of empty office buildings. And this isn't even, again, just driven by coronavirus. This is driven by um, uh, like the movement of companies outside city centers. This is driven by the fact that homeworking has been on the rise, not for the last six months, but for the last like, you know, several years. You know, there, are, there are lots and lots of office blocks and bits of commercial property uh, coming available. And so the solution has been for the government to say, okay... We're going to bring back this thing called permitted development, where we're going to knock the bottom out of housing standards if you're converting existing buildings, whether that's warehouses or office buildings or whatever, into housing, right? And so what you, what you then get is you, you get a way to flood the market with housing, but that doesn't, or, and that doesn't require significant state investment. It doesn't require uh looking to say uh expropriate the wealth either through taxation or through like occupancy laws or whatever of landlords 
it's a way to try to house people so they're not homeless, essentially, by by deregulating, which basically means bringing back slums, right? <laughs> yeah, although they, they, we're not bringing them back because I've I've been in a few of them. They're, right. they're definitely here right now. So P, PDR, Permitted Development Rights, has been around for quite quite some time. Um, David Cameron's government really liked it, and basically what what it is, as as you rightly said, is converting existing buildings, commercial buildings, into residential property without having to go through normal planning <laughs> which is if when you when you put it that simply is kind of wild like planning permission exists for a reason um mm. it's to make sure that communities are built properly you know like where where a building's gonna gonna sit is really important like what's around it is really important and then there's another aspect of that which is standards now the thing with pdr is it is supposed to still get building regulations sign off um and obviously that like speaks to the minimum size of a room, for instance. But what I have found in many of the uh, permitted development conversions from office to residential that I've been into in Croydon, for instance, um, and Bradford, actually, there's loads of PDR in Bradford. Um, they, they <laughs> I, don't, I don't think they've ever had building reg sign off. And what I've not been able to get to the bottom of in my investigations is like how the fuck that happened. Sorry, I just swore. Um, don't know, no, if, that's that's a, don't know if that's allowed. Um, but like, how did that happen? Because legally they're supposed to have building work sign off. So you have these tiny, tiny rooms that are way beneath the minimum standards that shouldn't exist. Potentially sometimes aren't safe. Like this is what experts I've interviewed have said, like the safety is, is highly questionable. Um, and also just really bad for people's mental health to be in a tiny, tiny box room in a converted office. Mm. Um, that is now housing. Like there's a block in Croydon, which is actually where I grew up. And I remember, I think it used to be the BT building. Um, and it's a huge, huge, like massive block with um, mirrored glass windows that barely even open. Um, some of mm. them don't open at all. That's now been turned into flats. So yeah. That the, the, this is a good illustration of the problem, um, and it, and this is why we should be concerned that this government have been like, yeah, let's do more PDR in response to coronavirus and use up all the empty preps or whatever, um, because that building once for Croydon was jobs. Um, there were people who were coming in and out of Croydon, maybe lived nearby, using local businesses. Like it was an important um, spot in the community. Now, of course, it's residential, fine, but there's less office space. Croydon was like a really um, busy place, like a really busy commercial area. That's no longer the case. So now it's becoming kind of commuter belt, people just coming and going. That has an effect on the community. I know that the Labour MP for Croydon um, is really concerned about that. But then there's another issue, which is the quality of the, the flats just isn't up to scratch. They're noisy too warm the windows don't open the water yeah. pressure always goes off because it was never meant to be residential so it wasn't built with proper plumbing and then like down the road um above what you, where there used to be this incredible nightclub called the black sheep bar where i spent like much of my youth um is now was once office offices and like the, the club underneath and is now a supermarket and flats they've got a similar problem right so a the erosion of the community but B, they, because it was never meant to be flats, it doesn't have the kind of boilers that you'd have to put in if you were building flats from scratch. 
So it's just the old built the old boilers that like heated the office block like poorly. Um, now that they've got however many, I think it's like 120 pe- 120 flats, however many people living there, showering at different times of day, needing their heating on, whatever, the boilers have just packed up. So last year, for months and months and months, the residents in the building didn't have any hot water, just didn't have any hot water. And one thing, when you remember as well, like these these permitted development buildings aren't just emerging out of whole cloth, right? Like, no, people are buying like businesses, free, and as 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 you say, in some cases, like family offices. That means like a business, a a basically an asset management firm that exists to manage the wealth of one family. Uh, based in a tax haven, uh, will own a company like you. You talk about Inspired Homes, which wins awards all the time and stuff, and then basically just converts office building into office buildings in zones sort of three or four or Croydon or whatever or Tower Hamlets into slums from a tax haven, all for the benefit of one family. Yeah, well, yeah, and, and that they they most of their money is yeah offshore money, um, and I think the person in question who is who is the the freeholder of that particular building that I mentioned, which is the block above what used to be the Black Sheep Bar. Um, the freeholder is actually not Inspired Homes. It's a different company. Um, but Inspired Homes, I think, with a developer. Um, that particular individual owns a huge percentage of housing in Britain. Um, I think it's like 1% of all homes, or something wild. Um, one man who has all his funds offshore, goes around buying up freeholds on these properties, charging people ground rent and just, just makes money out of poor conversions. Um, mm. And I it just, I think it's alarming that, that that has been one of the things that this government has responded to COVID with, right? Like, oh, I know what we'll do. We'll just lower standards even further when what we face currently is a crisis in housing standards, not just like in homes that are being rented out, not just in social housing, but also in the housing that is being built and sold. Like that block in Croydon, I met people there who had bought flats there through Help to Buy. So the government had effectively mm-hmm. subsidised these shitty conversions. Man, when you, when you lay it all out at once there, it's pretty depressing. Yeah. Um, it seems to be like a lot going on in terms of like when I was like looking when I was like looking uh, reading up on this, um, you have like this dual problem of like a government that's like obsessed with like fudging the numbers and kind of like you know there's been lots of kind of critiques in like on uh, trade publications for like builders and developers, which is just along the lines of what we've been saying before, which is this is really poor quality housing, like you know also a situation where a family where you have like, you know, maybe four, six people are getting the same amount of space as like maybe one or two people. Um, you know, so you end up having, you end up like creating these like untenable and like, I think one builder put it in terms of being like, you creating like human warehouses, which I thought was a very like quite horrific way of describing it, but also like probably the most accurate. I think, I think that that particular quote is in reference to when permitted development buildings are used as temporary accommodation, <clears throat> which happens all the time. Um, I've been into loads right. of those blocks. There's there's one in Catford that's partic- that's particularly bad. Um, there's another in Harlow, um, yeah, that's particularly bad. And the one I saw in Bradford was particularly bad. And what they mean by human warehouses is literally like, yeah, there's no communal space, windows don't open, people are just stacked on top of <clears> each other, and that's emergency accommodation because we don't have enough social housing. Yeah. 
It also just strikes me like one of the other problems that I think might come up and maybe you probably know, you probably know more about this than I do, which is just about how this doesn't really solve the problem. This doesn't really solve a problem of like, um, like landlords and property owners. It's like making a killing out of these new developments, um, without kind of giving assurance of like a quality or giving even the protections uh, for renters that like this prop, this was trying to resolve, right? All it's doing is sort of, sort of like increasing a supply with very bad products. Well, it's like, it's like if you're um, without kind of re- addressing any of the structural kind of dynamics that have caused this problem to begin well, I'm with. I'm saying it's like the, the lever here only goes one way. You know, the lever right. only goes more, is only goes deregulate more market because there's very, there's not much else you, that you really want to do because quite simply yeah. because like, to do something else would require a radical change away from what Britain, yeah. from from a a neoliberalized Britain where most people's houses no, you, are also their you know, bank accounts, and whether that is a, yeah. a a family office, or the perceived or the perceived idea that if you devalue the property, if you if you make a family office harder, uh, if you make it harder rather for a family office to you know convert a like a, a dog kennel into houses for people, right? Like if you make that harder, then there is this perception on the part of you know core Tory voters that their house price is going to be affected, and so I I, I don't reminds, know how you yeah, square that rem- circle by just continuing to do the same thing. It reminds me of this situation. So I, I feel like a proposal like this sort of came out by one of the think tanks. It might have been like Policy Exchange, but it might be one of these other places where they were t- trying to basically defend like making like mo- like micro houses or like micro flats. Um, where and they kind of like there were pictures showing what these microplats would look like. In one of these pictures, it was like a bunk bed, and underneath the bunk bed is like where you would have like your little kitchenette, but also like a toilet next. It was like it was like one of those things that I imagine like Joel Golby would do on the kind of like this is how much uh, what's it called like you know the, the, the whole like his whole like renters column thing. But they were like trying to defend it on the basis of like oh you know this is just like how much space we get, and the most important thing is to kind of get people onto the housing ladder, like no matter what. So it's almost as if like, and I feel like this is the argument that like the conservative party, um, many of whom like have kind of like have histories with policy exchange and all these other places are like pretty much advancing, but like their kind of solution, which isn't really a solution for like a dignified living, but more we're trying to get people to become homeowners or in this case, like own a small section of a cubicle. At any cost, right? Right. Yeah. Well, I think there's a few things. There's a few things here. Um, yes, the obsessive focus on home ownership uh, in policy terms has completely um, blinkered recent governments from dealing with the mess of the PRS, private rented sector. Although I would caveat that by saying that whatever you think of Theresa May, um, she did something that was a huge departure from. David Cameron and George Osborne, which is that she hired loads of people from shelter um, and had them sitting with her in number 10. Um, not, not people who agreed with her or with her party. Um, a guy called Toby Lloyd, he wrote an amazing book called Rethinking the Economics of Land and Housing, which I highly recommend. Um, and she listened to him, right? So like, the letting fee ban that I was involved with, that that was a consequence of, of him being hired and her listening to him. Um, the decision to ban Section 21, um, the social housing green paper, white paper. Um, there was good stuff happening, right? The renters' rights bill, which was promised before Boris Johnson took over. There was a shift occurring. Um, she also said she wanted to end help to buy, um, 
which was a good thing because that has basically poured petrol on the bonfire that is house prices. Um, so stuff stuff was happening and there was a shift. And I think the preoccupation with Brexit and then now COVID and Boris Johnson maybe not getting housing as much as May did or being ideologically um, unable to grapple with it and and also perhaps not being able to get as many great people to work for him um, has definitely shaped the direction that things have gone in. So I think there's a lot of behind the scenes politicking that is informing what we're seeing. Um, And then I suppose like the other aspect of this, which is like, you know, house prices have, have got so out of control in recent years. It's really important to note, like they have slowed down. They are slowing down um, because you can only stretch it so far. You could only stretch how much property can cost beyond what people are earning before banks will say, nah, we can't mortgage on it anymore. And we are seeing that happen now. So I think that those people, members of my own family who I get into this with regularly, um, who are like, Vicky, no, house prices always rise because that's just what they do. I'm like, okay, sure. Yeah. That's yeah. not what they, that's not just always what they do. They crash. Like the housing market is one of the most mm-hmm. volatile parts of the economy. It always has been. Um, and what we're seeing now is, is prices leveling out and banks, banks are, st- are starting to be like, no, nah, I'm not, I'm not, we're not going to lend. Um, so even with the stamp duty cut and like these reports of like an increase, I think we need to be very careful with that because I actually think that things are slowing down, but th- there's a, there's a really important point here. I think we have to be really mindful of which is wishing for a house price crash is not really the answer because a we've we've foolishly um allowed our economy to revolve around uh mortgage debt and b if if loads of people end up in negative equity which for anyone who doesn't know what it is is where your house ends up being worth less than you paid for it the people who are going to be hit the hardest by that right are the ones who weren't super wealthy and like scraped to get onto the housing ladder or did it through a scheme like helped buy assuming they weren't accessing the bank of mum and dad and then paying off the loan or, or shared ownership and once again it, it will be people who who really stretched themselves and bought into that dream who suffer so it's not as straightforward as as even i you know as i would like it to be um and i think that's that's why we're not really getting like clear solutions beyond you know, immediate responses to the pandemic, because it's really complicated. And there is a really, well, there are several answers to it, but just like build social housing, invest in social housing again, destigmatize it, rehabilitate it into the political conversation, make it something that people like my grandparents were so proud when they got their council flat, because it was like an aspirational thing to get. This is talked about really well in a book called Municipal Dreams that I recommend as well. Like, you know, it was, it was like an aspirational thing to be in social housing in the 70s. Um, make make that happen again, and and just introduce rent control. Like, well, hey, if if you're listening, government, that's what we have to get done. Uh, I'm I'm pretty sure that most of the people in the government do listen to this. But uh, noticing that we are <laughs> going a little bit long on time, uh, I think that's probably as good a place as any to uh, to end it because we have a policy proposal. So, uh, with that in mind, uh, Vicky, I want to thank you very much for coming and talking to us today about uh, housing and public housing and what the hell is going on uh, with, <laughs> with with permitted development and this reaction to COVID. Um, oh, I know I've just said we've just about run out of time. But the last, actually, the last thing I want to talk about is that public, ho- pub- 
good good standards of housing is also a health issue. So if you don't want to keep having pandemics, you can't keep people crammed into little offices living in a meter square. Um, yeah. <laughs> the last thing I'll say is like that is borne out in the data, right? So areas of really extreme overcrowding saw higher rates of infection. So, I mean, like case closed, right? Don't don't mm-hmm. cram people in to crappy housing. Yeah, yeah. Um, also, if you're living in poor quality housing, you're more likely to have health problems. So you're going to be more susceptible to illness. Um, it's just it's so obvious. I think that's that's the main thing with my beat as a journalist that like blows my mind week in, week out. It's like it's not actually that difficult. <laughs> I just somehow <laughs> somehow politicians over the last like 20 years have managed to completely mess it up. Ah, well. I'm I'm sure we'll get it right next time. Anyway, yes. So for real now, <laughs> this time, uh, thank you so much, uh, Vicky, for coming on and talking to us today. Where can people find you, you online? So um, I am on Twitter at Victoria Spratt and confusingly on Instagram at Vicky.Spratt. And I've really uh, messed up by not having the same name. On- Nevertheless, uh, I guess I'll throw back to me in studio. Thanks for having me, guys. Bye. Wow, what a fascinating interview. Gosh, yeah. I've picked up so much from that. Milo and Alice, you didn't have much to say. No, no, no I, yeah. I just was content to kind of let you two uh, really, you know, lead the way on that one. <laughs> I, for yeah. one, am a big listener. I've been quiet for the whole episode. I knew that. Was- I just <laughs> love to learn, you know? <laughs> Ever since I've made a lot of mistakes in my career, such as the planning of a coup in Equatorial Guinea, and since then I've really learned the value of listening. I've been practicing a lot of mindfulness and yoga to help me get over the horrifying things I've seen in the bush. And ever since then, people have told me that I'm much more pleasant to be around. I generally speaking, ask better and more interested questions of other people. It's made me a more rounded person. Is this jerk jerk. doing a TED talk? Yeah, wellness jerk. Wellness wellness jerk. And Uh, here's the way I tie my shoelaces. So, hey, um, thank you, everybody. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Um, Everyone who listened to this podcast that has... Uh, veered it has been, wildly yeah. in tone. I, it's been a mixed episode. I would, I would like, I'd like, you know, I mean, some of it has been, you know, very difficult to talk about. Others of it has been the main thing that is my source of happiness. Uh, one of my main sources of happiness. Uh, the flu. Which is continuing <laughs> to do this show. Yes. Um, anyway, hey, I want to thank you all for listening yeah. and making this all possible. Fly is actually my sister's name. <laughs> <laughs> um, Fleur van de Klik fuck up <laughs> uh I, I i take it back earlier about this being a major source of happiness in my life uh, it's a source of constant irritation a source of torment um, this fucking rot baby uh so let's see uh yeah i wanted yeah thank you for the third time for listening Buy a shirt. Uh, yeah there's shirts there's patreon yeah, send you know an the email yeah you know um, the you know how that goes yeah oh yeah uh, if you want a copy of honkball hoof just like email the show and just say you've donated yeah, to the but, london but buy an email, union just uh, buy an email subscribe yeah, yeah. to the yeah, show if you would like to uh, if you'd like to make a donation you can you can paypal us you can also we're, we're, we're a patreon you can also yeah. um or, you can also download the song on kazaa it's on LimeWire. It's on Emu. Yeah, if, if, if you just download, if you download honkball underscore hoofdeclasser dot exe. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, Down, download download our special uh, honkball buddy, which is a new a, a, a search bar. 
Yeah. <laughs> it's, a, a Dutch, you, it's Dirk Van Beer helps yeah. you search for stuff. Are you are you clog pilled? Uh, <laughs> download our new our new extension for the Opera browser. Um, so uh, also, like I think one of the things you can, if you listen to the section of uh, that Vicky and I talked about, which if you're listening to this, you did, but if you're sort of half the people on this podcast, you haven't yet. Um, one of what the do most you mean? Im- I've been here the whole time. <laughs> one of the most important things you can do is keep uh, renters unions stocked. Yeah, so, like, I, I get the feeling we're kind of like things in the US may be progressing past the point of bail funds. Yeah, like the bail I, zone. Um, yeah, it's, mm. it certainly is, seems to be entering a zone of some kind. Uh, Marcus Braun is still incarcerated. <laughs> that is well, true. Mark, yeah, comrade Marcus Braun. So uh, we will have a bail fund specifically for Marcus Braun. Yes. Marcus Braun is still incarcerated, much like the members of my family <laughs> in my basement. <laughs> for years. Other than that. This has been a running joke. I do not understand. I mean, I've asked you. You've explained it. I have never in my heart understood why. <laughs> because Austria is a very funny country. Yeah. We will be taking advice from American comrades on perhaps what the best way is yeah. to like the best way forward to like possibly change the bail fund thing up. Um, yeah. yeah, what to do in the meantime, mm. London. Uh, it's the tenants, the tenants and renters unions. Yeah. are what we're going to be plugging. Yeah. All uh, all proceeds from the honkball donations are going to the London renters union, I believe. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Um, so hey, uh, with that in mind, see you later, everybody. Yeah. Bye. Bye. Thank you.